This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold, Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jack Ford. So, what makes life worth living, and how can we feel truly fulfilled in our short time on this earth? Those are two of humanity's oldest questions, and the subject of a new book by three Yale professors titled Life Worth Living, A Guide to What Matters Most. The book is based on an undergraduate class the three teach at Yale, which has become one of the most popular courses the school has to offer. Courses already expanded to other universities and now will be available in book form for anyone interested in searching for deeper meaning in their lives. And joining me now are the authors of this book, Life Worth Living, A Guide to What Matters Most. We're joined by Dr. Miroslav Wolf, the founding director of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. Also, Dr. Matthew Grossman, the director of Life Worth Living program at the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. And Dr. Ryan mcinelli Lins, the associate director of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture at the Yale Divinity School. Gentlemen, welcome to all of you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having Wonderful us. Wonderful to be with you. So let's start with the course, if we can. And Ryan, I'll ask you first, how did the course come about? Well, about 10 years ago, Miroslav was noticing that students have a real hunger to ask the really deep questions of life, not just in their dorm rooms at 2 a.m., but in the classroom with the best of their intellectual energies and a guide from uh, from professors and and with each other in the sort of structure that you get in a seminar. Uh, now, there's often a hesitancy to do that sort of work because we worry that by putting questions of meaning on the table, we risk being exclusive, that you can really only have that conversation if you all already agree on some sort of overarching philosophical framework. And Life Worth Living was was our attempt to say, no, no, you can have truth-seeking conversations in a pluralistic community where not everybody agrees starting in and not everybody agrees coming out, but you can all learn from each other and uh, and really pursue the truth. You don't have to give up the meaning questions in order to get the inclusion that you're after. Were you surprised, surprised Ryan, at the beginning at, at how many students became interested in this so quickly? It was a little surprising. The The most surprising thing to us was uh, the end of the first semester. Uh, as a teacher, I find I almost never really know how things are going as the class goes along. And uh, there was a session at the end that we set aside to say, hey, we were doing something experimental here. Could you give us some feedback? And we started getting feedback like everybody should take this course and you should make it two semesters long and things like this. And the the energy that we got from students there made us think, wow, this can't be a one off deal. We need to build this into something that lasts. I'm going to come back to the students and some of their reactions in a moment. But let's talk about how this then moves forward into the book that we're talking about. So Miroslav, how, how, let me ask you that question. Enormously successful course for almost a decade now. What was the motivation behind saying, all right, let, let's, let's make this a book? 
you know, pretty soon uh, as we started teaching the class, uh, and in fact, also before, we realized uh, this is not just a question that our Yale students are interested. This is a question of our time. This is a much more broadly distributed feeling uh, among the moderns that we kind of are in, uh, ill at ease how to understand a kind of deeper meaning of our, our lives. And you can kind of illustrate that in, with two images. And one image is a hamster wheel. Uh, a lot of us have a feeling that we are stuck in a hamster wheel. We are uh, running after satisfying one desire after another. And soon as we are finished with one, the other one comes. We look to the side and see what other people want. And pretty soon that wheel is starting to move uh, very, very fast. And we lose a sense, what is it that we are actually trying to do as we are running in this hamster wheel? I think Kenneth Galbraith has said, you know, that hamster wheel might be great for hamsters, but it was really never a great image of the fulfilled human life. Mm -hmm. Second image. I, uh, we get this image from a sociologist uh, from Germany, Hartmut Rosa. And that's an image of a painter in a studio. And painter uh, normally knows roughly what they want to do uh, when, when they want to create art. Uh, and yet this painter suddenly gets obsessed about all the kinds of things that need to be there in order for uh, him or her or them to be able to actually do that, that art. How are the paints? How are the brushes? How, how's the light in the studio? Uh, is, is, the, is, is the heat comfortable uh, there? And so forth. And uh, ends up being lost in means that are necessary for the craft without actually never doing the craft. And that's very similar to what we experience ourselves today. We are dedicated to means because we can't all together agree on what the ends are and therefore lose the ability to pursue ends that are appropriate to us as human beings in given living in this particular setting. I'm going to come back to some of that because you talk about the, the the means being dressed up as the ends oftentimes in our lives here. Uh, it is, I want to note, it is a marvelous, marvelous book. I sat down to thinking I was going to leaf through it a little bit to just get some ideas for this conversation. And I didn't stand up again until I finished the book. It is, it's that compelling. Matt, but let, let me ask you this. Sometimes it's as important for people to understand what a book isn't. And here, I suspect a lot of people think, oh, that this sounds really interesting. I'm going to get this book. And by the time I get to the last page, I'll have the answers that I'm looking for. Is that this book? Well, let me say, if if you get to the end of the book and you have the answers, uh, it'll be because you have done a lot of work along the way. And we hope you will, right, right. To, 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 to go through and, and sort through the questions and pursue your own answers. What you won't have at the end of the book is a bunch of our answers. Um, we're we're most interested around our seminar tables at Yale and in all of our engagements in the community and, in, and indeed in this book with empowering folks to wrestle with these questions for themselves, to uh, to benefit from, to learn alongside some of the world's great um, religious and philosophical and artistic thinkers. Um, but at the end of the day, what we're doing chapter after chapter is helping you understand the stakes of the question, helping you understand the sort of lay of the land of different kinds of answers that different thinkers in different uh, communities and times and places have have offered. And then we're really trying to, 
you say at the end of every chapter, it's it's your turn. Um, yeah, you have I was going to ask you about that. That yeah. that's actually a section at the end of every chapter yeah. titled "Your Turn." What what's the idea behind that, Matt? Well, the thought is that you know we're we don't want to feed you the answers, and our hunch is you you probably don't want us to do that either. Mm. <laughs> um, you each one of us has um, an inalienable responsibility, actually to wrestle with these questions um, ourselves. That's what I, we tell our students on the first day of class, two things. We tell them, look, the the question of the shape of flourishing life, probably above your pay grade. There's, there's no becoming an expert in this. You're not gonna develop an expertise. And yet it's also inalienably your responsibility to answer this. And so at some point we have to, we have to do our best, listen broadly, um, try to think carefully, reflect um, diligently, but then we need to do the work ourselves. And so, yeah, at the end of every chapter, we're just trying to offer maybe some short exercises, a few questions to, to journal about, to reflect on yourself, maybe to have a conversation with some trusted friends. And really those conversations are what I'm, I'm most excited about. The idea that this book could spark those conversations um, maybe within a family or within a neighborhood, a community, um, uh, whatever that might look like. That's what we've enjoyed for the last, like, as you said, almost 10 years at Yale is those yeah. community, those, those conversations in these communities that are, that are spurred by these, by these questions. And that your turn section, I, I think is a marvelous vehicle to, to spur those conversations. Um, Ryan, so we talk about the, the book titled life worth living a guide to what matters most. And yet when you get in the introduction, you will see something that might seem paradoxical, um, even a little bit troubling, because what you say is this book might wreck your life. Now, explain that to me so that people don't see that and say, oh, oh dear, why am I doing this then when I'm looking for a life worth living and you're providing this <laughs> warning to me? What does that mean, actually, Ryan? So all of us have ingrained ways of living. Uh, we've got habits, we've got plans, we've got uh, implicit values, and these are all just kind of working themselves out. We're chugging along. Uh, like Miroslav said, a lot of us are in the hamster wheel. If it's not a hamster wheel, maybe it feels a little bit like a race, um, or maybe it just feels like one thing after another. Um, and there are some structures to our lives that are that are there that help us kind of manage this and help us go whatever direction we're going. Um, the thing about really deep reflection about the good life, about what really makes life worth living, is that it can upend any and all of that. Um, you never know where it's going to take you. And so it can kind of disassemble or break down various structures that you have in your life. But when it does that, it comes with a promise. Um, and this is why, uh, well, at least I think you shouldn't just toss the book away. Um, <laughs> it, because the promise is that it will reorient orient you, that it'll put you on a better path, that you'll have a firmer grip on what it is that you really matters in your life. And you'll be able to orient yourself more truly towards that. So the life that it wrecks, uh, we hope, is one that you look back and say, yeah, that needed wrecking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Miroslav, uh, I'm going to get to a couple of the sections in a moment and the, and the, the sub questions that are provided that are asked here. But I was struck um, as somebody I mentioned to you, and I mentioned this before, I, I'm a visiting lecturer at Yale, I've been for 16 years now and and have been so fascinated. I'd seen your course thinking, I've got to audit this. I've got to sit in and listen to this. But I was struck, certainly as a teacher, by one of your lines where you say that 
in your in your classroom and by extension in the book you talk about your words that a seminar table that breaks the rules of time and space Miroslav, what what does that mean in your course and what what it, more perhaps more important what would it mean for the people who are going to read this book you know we moderns uh tend to live in um very short time span span we look very little bit little to the past we maybe stretch ourselves a bit into the future but we are immersed uh, in the present and what's lost in the process is this sense that human beings have been wrestling with issues of meaning of worth uh, of what kind of life is worthy of our humanity uh, for centuries and they have spent years reflecting uh, upon that question, building uh, one uh, 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 one brick uh, at a time, for, so as to create kind of beautiful uh, edifices in which one can actually inhabit uh, and live. And what we want to invite the readers and what we invite our students uh, as well is to go visit these different ways in which people have uh constructed ways uh, in which we, we can inhabit the houses uh, of meaning uh, that conversation i think is very very important you know there's a kind of value there's a now this is a, a little bit big word there is a value of non-contemporaneity of being out of joint uh from our time in which we find ourselves and then look at our experiences of life from a vantage point uh, of the past. Uh, that enriches uh, our lives and suddenly uh, see, uh, let us see things from a different uh, perspective and let us uh, go deeper into actually who we as human beings are. Oh. Hey, Matt, question for you. Um, I, I mentioned that the book is this overarching question there. The chapters are sub-questions here. Um, that are all in their own way, shape, or form, very, very probing and compelling. Let me ask you about one of them, and that is, uh, what should we hope for? And I, again, I was struck by, um, you, you mentioned a, a survey that talked about some 83% of students, I think it was done back in 2017, basically were saying what they're hoping for is to be well off financially. Mm -hmm. And then, then the chapter goes on to talk about you know what, what what does that mean does that mean does that mean money does that mean influence and and where should that is that enough is that what you should be hoping for talk a little bit about that chapter and some of the thoughts the important thoughts there yeah i you know this is an important question um uh for for many of our students this is the question we think of this as the question about what kinds of circumstances of our lives are are worth wanting um, not just which ones do we happen to want um, or which ones have we have we been told to want or which desires of ours have been carefully cultivated by marketers mm -hmm. but which what 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 thing would actually what things in life what circumstances as you say it could be maybe wealth could be reputation could be an education it could be it could be um it could be health um it could be a a, a good government. Um, anyway, all, what what should we actually hope for in life when it comes to our circumstances? Um, one of our colleagues, uh, she taught a, a course like this at another institution. We'll go nameless at the end of the semester. Um, having taught a course on the good life, um, mm -hmm. she got a feed got some feedback from a student in an end of the semester survey in which the student said, "You know, 
For a course about the good life, I would have thought there would have been a lot more about yachts. Um, <laughs> and to her credit, um, her course on the good life had said almost nothing about yachts, um, which I think right. is probably, um, like I said, to her credit. Um, but it's it, the, what is desirable in life's circumstances is uh, at, at first can sort of seem obvious, right? You can get these really large numbers of people agreeing what's sort of valuable, young people hoping for, you know, to be stable financially, um, or maybe for for some of us, it's um, it's just simply long life itself and health and happiness. Um, uh, some of those things are are sort of consequences of or are themselves sort of circumstances for our lives. Those things can seem really obvious, and it's worth pausing and sort of considering. Um, we think uh, which among those, uh, as I said, not just are the ones that we'd want, but which ones actually worth wanting would be worth having. Um, where should we place our hopes? And this is a place where those um, the input of the ancients can be really helpful, right? So money seems fairly obvious. It accords well with our obsession with means because money is like the ultimate means. It can get you almost anything. And, and, and you talk about you talk about the ancients. You talk about Aristotle, right, in the book, and you talk about the you know, the notion of Aristotle, you know, flourishing means all of those things, right? Right, right. And and Aristotle has a kind of a nice measured view on on such things. Um, he he's like a, a a very well thought out, polished version of something like our common sense. Mm. Um, uh, but then someone like the Buddha comes along. And uh, this is somebody who's born a prince. He has wealth and power and influence, um, and he leaves it all. And then there's this really compelling story in some of the in some of the tales of the Buddha's life, where he comes back home after he's found enlightenment, and his son, who he left on the day of his birth to pursue enlightenment, comes asking, saying, "Give me my inheritance." By which the son means, "You were a prince. Give me all your princely wealth and power." Um, it should be mine by right. And the Buddha looks at him and says, mm, if I give him that inheritance, I'm binding him to suffering and and kind of warped desires. I'm going to give him a greater inheritance. And he starts to teach him and he welcomes him into the community of monks. And you think that's really different from the sort of circumstances that we tend to think are good. Wealth actually would be bad for you on this view. Yeah. Um, which just turns it right on its head, you know. And I suspect in your conversations with students, you might get some pushback from the students about wealth being bad for you here. I, I, and, and I should mention that you you have a variety of of thought leaders. You talked about the Buddha, and that was a a wonderful passage about him. Uh, Ida B. Wells is in here. Simon Peter, and very compelling personal stories about them. And and also, and, and Miroslav, let me ask you this because. Again, there are some things that might sound counterintuitive here, but leads you to th to think as, as somebody who's reading this. One is where you talk about the notion of 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 the value of of that pain and suffering can have in helping you find a life worth living. Explain that for us. Yeah, the the immediate reaction to pain and suffering is for us to want to have nothing uh, with it. <laughs> Uh, want to get rid of it, eliminate pain, pain and suffering, uh, and yet uh, in, in this great tradition, suffering has often 
mean, not so much and good as end in itself as if the folks were uh, masochists, but they have many have realized that actually suffering can open you up to understand better who you are as a human beings, to understand your place uh, also in the world, to in a sense start asking the question of the meaning of life. And I think we are also encountering this often in our con in contemporary settings. As long as everything goes its own course, we, we don't seem to be arrested enough in order to step back and ask whether that course is just worth pursuing. And once certain forms of suffering uh, arrest us, then we can ask that question. We're freed in a sense by the suffering to ask the question that comes uh, to our uh, to our benefit. And that's not to say, of course, again, that we want to uh, affirm suffering as intrinsic, uh, intrinsic good. Often we want to struggle and ought to struggle uh, against it. But the challenge also, which I think the, the the great traditions have always faced, and which we also faced, what to do with suffering that you cannot eliminate, that inescapably come, and you might hope to eliminate it in the future. We will maybe eliminate it, but right now it's there for you. You're stuck in the middle of it. What kind of resources do you have in order to live life that is worthy of your humanity? when you are stuck in uh, suffering? That's, I think, a very important question which many of those traditions raise and seek to answer. There's so many of these chapters, these interesting sub-questions. Who do we answer to? How does a good life feel? How should we live? I mentioned the uh, what should we hope for. Uh, Matt, there's another passage that I found interesting there where you, you talk about that it's possible for us to succeed in our highest aspirations, yet fail as human beings. And once again, I suspect your students might initially be puzzled by that. How can we succeed in, in what we're aspiring to do and, and yet be confronted with failure at the same time? What does that mean? Well, um, if I'm remembering the, the passage right, I think the, the sort of example we have on the table at that point, and certainly early on in the book, is we tell the story briefly of Albert Speer. Um, a, a young man who simply wanted to be an architect and um, sort of had a, you might even say a calling as an architect. And as he pursued that in 1930s Germany, one gets a sense of how this story is going to go badly. He, mm -hmm. he finds that his opportunity to build all the buildings he might ever build uh, would come in aligning himself um, with, the, with the Nazi party and with, with Hitler. Um, he at the, towards later on in his life, corresponding with a, a a younger family member i forget exactly who it is gives some account his daughter. Of his, his daughter okay um he gives an account of of his life and he says i at the end of in the final accounting i was above all an architect yeah um and one would say in a certain sense as an architect he was a success well, if you look uh, at the buildings, just from the sense of the architectural, the grandeur of those structures, it's easy to say that. But as you said, when you look at the rest of his life. Well, and, and I think from the point of view of our students, I mean, simply he had a goal to be an architect and, and he became an architect and he built buildings, right? Um, simply like he had a, he, he was a success in that sense. Um, and success is what we warn our students against as a, we say it's it's a formal good, right? It's a there's no substance to it. Success just means you had a goal and you reached it. 
um, it doesn't make any measure, any um, uh, sort of assessment about whether the goal was worth having in the beginning, or whether it actually might be a, a you know have been a terrible thing. Right? If you have a bad goal, successfully achieving it is actually um, uh, is actually a disaster. And and we think this is what we see in 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 Speer in, in really dramatic ways. And we 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 see is a possibility for us in perhaps less dramatic ways, but no less important ways that it's. Um, if we get lost in our uh, the projects that we've taken up for ourselves, if we get lost in um, pursuit of our goals, we can um, we can find that we have um, yeah succeeded in some project or another, but we have failed as as human beings. We've failed to live into um, what is worthy in our shared humanity. Uh, I, I could continue this conversation for hours with you. As I said, I'm going to figure out a way that I can audit this course. But I, I have a last question. i got about a minute left. Ryan, let me come to you uh, with this last question. And, and that's essentially what we always ask authors of books. And, and we've talked about it here, but let me ask you to, to capsulize it if we can. What would you hope then that readers of this will walk away from with it? My, my greatest hope is that, uh, is that you come away with a sense of the deep worthiness of your life. And just because your life is is valuable, it's worth living well. And because it's worth living well, it's worth thinking well about what that means. Uh, there are all sorts of forces that pull us towards triviality in our lives. Uh, and it can be pretty easy to get on board with those. Who are we to, to dream something great? And one of the, the things that you realize is if what you're dreaming to be great at is being a human, uh, then it's not overly ambitious. It's precisely right for who you are. Well, it's it's the book, once again, Life Worth Living, A Guide to What Matters Most. This book does what you all as marvelous teachers, I am sure, do in your classroom. It provides us with some guidance, and then it requires us to think which is the way that we can resolve any questions that are important to us. So gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. It's a real pleasure talking about it. I look forward to connecting with you all down the road. You all be well Thanks now. So much, Jack. Thanks so thank much. You. Thanks for tuning in to MetroFocus. You can take our award-winning program with you wherever you go with MetroFocus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play MetroFocus, the podcast. Also available at MetroFocus.org, WLIW.org slash radio, and on the NPR One app.